They were adventurers, farm boys, prospectors, family men, and former soldiers. Well, these men who drove the stage through Wyoming had to endure the heat of summer and the sleet and snow of winter, and not to mention a few bandits. These hardy stagecoach drivers were true pioneers of Hot Springs County, Wyoming. The pioneers of outlaw country, cowboys, lawmen, and outlaws, to the businessmen and women who all helped shape Jermopolis and Hot Springs County, Wyoming. Here are their stories. Over the stage line to Thermopolis. Driving the stage could be dangerous business. Early in his career, coal miner John Holtz drove stage over Bird's Eye Pass, which took him from Shoshone to Thermopolis over steep grades and miles of lonely wilderness. This route began in late 1905 when travel over Mexican Pass was halted by the tribes who owned the land within the reservation. One summer day, John was driving the stage on Bird's Eye when two men tried to stick him up. He said that one little fellow climbed up on the wheel and pointed the gun in his face. At the same time, the other bandit climbed up on the right side and put the gun on the man that was riding shotgun with John. We want your money, they yelled. Somehow in the commotion, the man with the shotgun distracted the other bandit, and John knew that this little guy was scared because his gun kept shaking. He was so out of control with shaking that John figured that no matter what happened, he was going to get shot. So John started shouting and wrestled the gun away. The other bandit bolted when he saw the robbery going awry, but the scared thief was hauled into jail. Another time, John recalled an accident when the wheels came off his wagon as they were on the pass. The stagecoach turned over and his passenger, a lady sheep rancher, was left behind. John's brakes wouldn't work, so it was some time before he could go back and rescue the stranded passenger. Her only injury was a bum knee. Sometimes, he said, the snow was so thick that he had to make everyone get out and just let the horses try and pull the stage through the snow. In the fall of 1898, seven years before Bird's Eye Pass was used as a route, the Casper and Thermopolis stage line opened for business. The Big Horn River pilot ran a small ad announcing that the stage was prepared to carry passengers and express. They would run daily, except Sundays, and the new proprietor, R.H. Wagner, guaranteed reasonable prices. There might be reasonable prices, but not always reliable drivers, as one hapless pioneer learned. It was Thanksgiving Day, and Dora McGrath was riding to Casper. On her way home to Glenrock from a trip to visit her sister in Thermopolis, as she traveled over the old Bridger Trail, she had the full experience of a stagecoach ride with all the thrills. For some reason, a boy was driving that day, and the two teams hitched to the stage were Bronx. The boy carelessly stepped out on the brake block and frightened the Bronx. Away they flew, jerking the lines from his hands. 
There was nothing for the occupant of the stage to do but sit still and hold tight. Tearing frantically along, one Bronx stepped into a prairie dog hole and down went both teams into the stage, rolling over, Dora McGrath underneath. The boy driver finally managed to poke a hole through the top of the coach, crawled out, and pulled Mrs. McGrath out after him. Her injuries did not prove to be serious after a day or two of rest. In August of 1901, a journalist introduced readers of the Natrona County Tribune to this stage line, letting them know exactly what to expect on a more uneventful trip. If you have never made a trip on the stage from Casper to Thermopolis in 36 hours, a distance of 140 miles, then you have missed something in this life which you would remember until your last day. Being up for two nights in a day seemed hard, but we assure our readers that they would be kept awake along the entire route and they would have a good appetite at all the meals. You leave Casper at 9 o'clock in the evening with a four-horse team ahead of you. After traveling west for 14 miles, you come to the first relay station where the four horses, which have been going at a continual trot all the way, are unhooked and four fresh horses take their place. In five minutes, you are again heading west at a full trot. About midnight, you pass the Stone Ranch where O.K. Garvey is living and has been running this past year. In another hour or two, you come to the Casper Creek Road Ranch, which is now under the management of Ballard and Steed. A small mailbag is dropped off at this place, but no one was disturbed from their slumbers. You hit the road again and keep time with a nod of your head to all the ruts and jolts encountered until you reach William Clark's home ranch on South Casper Creek about 2.30 in the morning. You are fed breakfast here, although it is somewhat earlier than most of us are accustomed to eating breakfast. You will nevertheless enjoy the meal, for Mrs. Clark and her daughters are well aware how to set a nice breakfast. The good cooking and the hospitality of the hostess are indeed a comfort to tired mortals who have been bumping along the road all night long. After you finish your breakfast and have a little social chat with Mrs. Clark, you make your way out to the stagecoach and get ready to proceed on your journey. At Clark's Ranch is where you notice the first break of day in the east, and you feel more like lying down on the ground and taking a nap than hitting the trail again. But just as sleep is beckoning, you hear the drivers, All aboard! And in a minute, you are again heading west on a swift trot, as another fresh team of four horses has been hooked to your chariot. When Mr. Clark's ranch is a few miles behind you, the sun makes its first appearance, and you can see some evidence of life on the lone prairie. Now you are traveling along what is known as the hogback of the Powder River country. There is not a freighter who has ever been along this road in wet weather, but who knows all about the hogback? For when it rains or snows, the horses sink in the gumbo up to their bellies, and the wagon wheels go down as far as their hubs. These few miles of road has caused more profanity from freighters than all of the rest of the road between Casper and Walton. 
Consequently, someone has named this particular spot the Freighter's Delight. After getting well on the hogback, you come to what is known as Hell's Half Acre. It is a patch of ground which has the appearance of at one time containing a bed of coal and the coal having been all burned out. There are deep sinks in the ground, almost a half mile deep, and peaks sticking up in all shapes and sizes. It is truly half an acre of good-for-nothing land. After leaving this spot and traveling for several miles, you meet the eastbound stage, which is bringing all the mail, express, and passengers from Lander and Thermopolis to Casper. You get a squint of those dusty passengers, and wonder if they are as tired and sleepy as you are. And from the way they look at you, they are probably wondering the same thing. Another change of teams is made at Keg Springs, where Martin Oliver is a stock tender. Eight miles more and you reach Walton, where you are greeted by Oliver Johnson, the postmaster and general manager of the Walton Commercial Company store. He will talk business with the driver chat with the passengers, and wait on customers all at the same time. Oliver has sheep interests in the vicinity, and the management of the store at Walton is so close to his moneyed interests that he is perfectly satisfied with his lot. Genial Tom and Mrs. Hood are living in Walton, where they have management of the hotel. The Cooper Dipping Plant is located here as well as large shearing pens, and many thousands of sheep are shorn here each spring and given a good hot bath and a solution, which Mr. Holiday says is the best remedy on earth to cure scab and give sheep a clean, nice-looking fleece. Hundreds of sacks of wool are stacked here from early spring until late in the summer, waiting for freighters to come along and haul them to Casper for shipment east on the railroad. After the mail is transferred and the express is unloaded, the passengers are again told to all get aboard. So you arouse yourself from any pleasant dreams you are having or tear yourself away from an interesting conversation and start for Round Hill. There you will take dinner and perhaps get a little sleep before changing cars for either Lander or Thermopolis. Everything is unloaded from the coach here and divided up for the two branch roads, one leading to Thermopolis and the other to Lander. Round Hill Station is looked after by Mr. and Mrs. George Demarest. Mr. Demarest looking after the stock and Mrs. Demarest attends to the comfort of the inner man of the passengers. She gets up a good meal, but as a general thing, most passengers are too tired and sleepy to enjoy eating. After dinner, the weary passengers lay down in the barn out of the hot sun and many are snoring away when they feel a jolt in their ribs and awaken to find the driver is about to leave on the final 75 miles of the trip, which will require the balance of the day and all of the next night. You get a new driver here and if it happens to be Gene Brown, you are sure of a safe trip. For he is not only a careful driver, but he can make better time and allow the horses to go slower than any man you ever rode with. You start out across the burning sand and alkali flats for Thermopolis. What the lander passengers might see along the road that is interesting, we know not, for we have never gone that route. 
But the Thermopolis passengers experienced the hardest part of the trip between Round Hill and Lost Cabin. For it is done during the hottest part of the day. You pass along through about six miles of alkali flat and the road is very rough. About three o'clock in the afternoon, you reach Lost Cabin, where there is a long lost gold mine, which Mr. Oakey found a few years ago when he put up his general store. There are a number of buildings at Lost Cabin and the elegant mansion of Mr. Oakey, which is almost completed. The mansion is indeed a treat in the eye after coming in from the miles of waste and desert that you have been traveling over all day. After transacting the necessary business at Lost Cabin, the driver again shouts, All aboard! And the coach starts across country headed for a mountain peak, which you are informed you must cross over before you get supper. At first, the mountain looks about 20 miles away, but after the driver informs you about supper, it looks to be twice that far away. A few hours from Lost Cabin, you come to a steep hill, which looks almost impossible for a team of horses to descend with a wagon. The driver stops and rough locks the wheels and makes an examination of the wagon and harness. If everything looks all right, you suddenly pitch downward. When you get to the bottom, you say to yourself that if you ever go down that hill again, you will get out and walk down. This is called Moore Hill because it is only a short distance from the ranch J.W. Moore once owned on Bridger Creek. M.L. Bishop is living on this ranch now and is stock tender for Mr. Clark's stage line. Another change of horses is made here, and once again, you start for the mountain, which you must pass over before you get supper. You travel along the valley of Bridger Creek, in which are located many prosperous ranches. The first after the Moore Ranch being the Ryder Ranch, where Mrs. Ryder and her daughter Minnie live and thrive on their little garden. They also have some stock running out on the range. We noticed Minnie coming up from the creek where she had been watering horses and other stock, but her manner of riding was not appropriate with her style of dress, and she quickly made an escape into a nearby draw and out of sight as soon as she noticed the stage. The next ranch up the creek is owned by Samuel Warden and a great deal of valuable land which has not yet been cleared of sagebrush, but he has a nice garden spot and has a reputation of furnishing the nicest lot of garden truck to passerbys of any in this part of the country. A little farther up the creek you come to the ranch, where William Long has made his home for years. He has one of the nicest and most valuable ranches in this valley. He has a large tract of land cleared and raised and puts up hundreds of tons of alfalfa each year. Mr. Long is postmaster at D Ranch and all the settlers on Bridger Creek receive their mail at this office. After you leave D Ranch, you commence to climb the mountain on the other side of which you are promised dinner. But it is already beginning to get dark and it is a two hours ride before you will get to the mountain home ranch. You commence to realize that meals are far and few between. The horses must necessarily travel slow up the mountain and the weary passengers are beginning to suffer from a combination of hunger, thirst, sleep and fatigue. 
After a long pull of an hour or more, the stage finally reaches the top of the mountain when the horses are given a short rest. Then you start to slide down the other side of the mountain where you strike the head of Kirby Creek and Tom Clark's ranch. Mr. Clark has a nice ranch house and a band of sheep which he runs on the nearby range. You are attracted by the lights from his camps as you glide by on your rapid rush to supper. It is about 10 o'clock p.m. when you finally reach Mr. Clark's home ranch where Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Burgess are in charge. This is the place you have been looking for for a long time and when you get your feet under the table you are not disappointed. This is where you get one of the nicest meals along the entire route. Mrs. Burgess seems to know just what the weary traveler most desires. She is an excellent cook and the man who is not satisfied with the meal he gets here is indeed hard to suit. A man never took a meal at the Brown Palace or Palmer House that gives such satisfaction as the one he gets at the Mountain Home Ranch. After supper, if the stage is on time, you are allowed to rest about 10 minutes while a fresh team is hitched up. If you are off for Thermopolis, which is 40 miles distance and which will require an all night's drive before you reach there. There are many interesting sights along the stretch of road if you have any desire to look at them. The first and most interesting is a stone chimney, which has stood on the Lone Prairie since the early 50s. Two hunters and trappers built cabins at this lonely place. They were the first white settlers in this part of the country. They had not been here very long before the Indians found them, burned their cabins, and killed the settlers. But their chimney has remained there undisturbed for all these years and serves as a headstone for the white men who had lost their lives in those early years. You travel on and on even getting a little sleep now and then when a smooth stretch of road is reached. But you are awakened so often that it is only an aggravation trying to sleep. So then you brace yourself up and take a look at the countryside in the moonlight. About daybreak, you reach the turbulent waters of the Big Horn River. Then you come to Andersonville. And across the river, you will see where the old town of Thermopolis was located just three years ago. There is a schoolhouse at Andersonville in which Miss Kane is now teaching the summer term. She has about a dozen scholars, but where they came from is beyond the power of the human eye to see. Thermopolis is six miles from here, but it is the longest six miles we have ever yet traveled. You pass over hills, through canyons, around creeks and curves, and by the time you reach town, you are certain you have traveled at least 10 miles from the little schoolhouse seen along the wayside. You finally reach Thermopolis, completely tired out and exhausted. The first thing you do is look for a bed in which to fall. There you plan to sleep the sleep of the tired and weary pilgrim far from home. After remaining in bed all the rest of the day and the following night, you are ready to go over to the hot springs and take a bath to relieve yourself of some of the real estate you have accumulated on your person along the stage route. It requires 125 head of horses to keep the stages moving on this route, and there are at least 20 men employed. It matters not what kind of weather we have, the coaches must be kept on the move. They carry the U.S. mail, and like time, the mail 
waits for no man. Mr. Clark has conducted this line for lo these many years and has given universal satisfaction in the government and the passengers. Everyone hopes he will again be awarded the new mail contract this fall after his present contract expires. Thank you for listening to Pioneers of Outlaw Country. We are your hosts, Jackie Dorothy and Dean Keene. Over the stage line to Thermopolis. Be sure to subscribe to Pioneers of Outlaw Country so you don't miss a single episode of this historic series. The stories of our pioneers were brought to you by the Hot Springs County Pioneer Association. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This is a production of Legend Rock Media. <laughs>